for the listeners, there was a, a riddle that uh, I left you with last week from uh, David Astle's Riddledom. How, how is it that a woman is like an arrow? And Jan suggested she might be sharp, but it's because she needs a bow to set her off, and until then, she is in a quiver. So, uh, the delights of Riddledom with David Astle. But my pre-record today is with um, Peter Rees, a uh, biographer, and he's chosen the topic of Charles Bean, who was the World War I historian who went amongst uh, the troops in the trenches carrying a pen instead of a rifle. So if I've got everything organised, here is my interview with Peter Reese. Those who served in World War I have reached iconic status in our national consciousness, but one unsung hero is someone who rarely, if ever, carried a rifle. Charles Bean was Australia's official World War I war correspondent, and a new book, Bearing Witness by Peter Rees, documents his life and achievements. So, Peter, welcome to 3CR. Thanks very much, David. It's great to be here. Look, there are so many points we could touch on, so I'm just going to jump in and at the deep end, so to speak. Did Charles Bean help shape the identity of the Australian digger? Well, I think he did. He saw uh, the personification of the the Australian in the outback uh, coming together, being shaped um, and forming the uh, Australian Imperial Force uh, in World War One, uh, and that's and, and that was an image that he believed carried through from the outback. The people he'd seen in the outback, the shearers, the boundary riders, uh, the riverboat captains, he'd, he'd admired their grit, their, their, um, their ability to stand by their mate um, and their determination to do so. And he saw that being personified uh, and in fact honed as, as the, uh, uh, the men of the AIF trained and then ultimately uh, went into battle. At the same time, he's also critical of the British, the truth is that after a hundred years of breeding in slums, the British race is not the same and can't be expected to be the same as in the days of Waterloo. It is breeding one fine class at the expense of all the rest. I mean, he, this whole notion of, of race and talking about it in some ways today would seem a little politically incorrect. Well, he was a, a social Darwinist. He was very much influenced by those views, which took uh, hold at the uh, in the latter part of the um, the nineteenth century. The views of Charles Darwin about natural selection, and and the and he saw this in in the context um, uh, of the years that he was in Britain. Uh, after the family went back there, uh, he was born, of course, in, in Bathurst, in the outback of New South Wales, as it was then. And he went back, and in his formative years from 10 to, to 25 or thereabouts, uh, he was educated. And he's in, in this time, he saw the impact of industrialisation on, on the, uh, the British people. And he saw the way that it was affecting them physically. The, the people in the in the slums of the industrial areas were not the the big British, uh, the robust men and women uh, of of uh, decades um, and centuries earlier. So this was an influence of, on, on him. He, this this social Darwinist perspective, because really, then he is in many ways at the forefront of a lot of change that's occurring at the time, and he was interested in things like town planning and all these other areas in terms of what world were we shaping and creating? That's uh, very much the case. And, and th this commitment 
to social reform uh, was something that grew out of what he saw happening in Britain during those years when he was there for his education, um, uh, coming back to Australia in December 1904, and once again seeing this th- this country through new eyes, seeing the the, the, the wide open spaces, seeing the, the the wiry muscular men as he as, as he wrote about, um, and contrasting them with the, the men that he'd seen in the industrial slums of Britain, and from this grew his commitment to ensuring that Australians did not lose sight of this opportunity that they had to ensure that they made the, the most of their environment. And he, he wanted parks and gardens. He wanted to bring the country as much as he possibly could uh, into city areas. And he was fearful that the slums of Melbourne and, and Sydney would uh, encourage the sort of things that he had seen in Britain. Because, well, Australia in many ways is... Uh, very urban, however, um, when you look at... The, I mean, it is a myth, um, the outback, because a lot of the uh, contributions to the Bulletin and magazines like that that supported what um, Patterson and those were doing, they were from people that lived in and around the offices of the Bulletin in Sydney. So how mythological, how artificial is that perception that Bean had or true to life, is it? I mean, I'm, I'm going on here, I'm rabbiting on, but uh, he seemed to abhor labelling and class and all of those sorts of things, and yet at the same time he seems to be adding to it in some way. Well, of course, uh, Banjo Patterson uh, was um, educated by Bean's father, Edwin, and when when uh, Bean returned to Australia, uh, uh, Banjo was one of the first people that he made contact with, and it was through Banjo that that uh, he entered journalism, effectively. Because he was a mentor. Banjo had been a lawyer, went into writing, and Charles followed the same path. Same, same, same qualifications. Uh, a classics education, law, and journalism. So very much a, a career path that, that he emulated, that Banjo Patterson uh, helped him into. So... Bean did see, when he went to, to the outback, he did see these men that struck him, that, that, that they were so different. The numbers, though, of course, uh, were, as you say, very much still a, mat- a matter of most Australians already living in urban areas. But there was this ideal that Bean saw that he believed gave the Anglo-Saxon race because let's you know let, let's be quite clear Bean was an Anglo-Saxon at heart and he believed that the Anglo-Saxon race uh, was uh, uh, or had a special place yeah. um, in uh, world affairs and he believed that there was an opportunity for the Anglo-Saxon stock to be regenerated replenished here and not go down the deterioration that he was seeing um, in in Britain yeah I mean you've written here the Australian hero was becoming to some extent distinguishable from the Englishman in bodily appearance, in face and in voice. He also displayed certain markedly divergent qualities of mind and character. It's interesting. But it gets to the point almost of um, mythologising them because then if you look at what he had considered for a preface but ended up becoming um, an epilogue, if I'm correct, in the final paragraph of the histories... Twenty-three years ago, the arms were handed in, the rifles were locked in the rack, the horses were sold, the guns were sheeted and parked in storage for other gunners, the familiar faded green uniform disappeared from the streets. But the Australian Imperial Force is not dead. 
That famous army of generous men marches still down the long lane of its country's history with bands playing and rifles slung. What these men did nothing can alter now. The good and the bad, the greatness and smallness of their story will stand. Whatever of glory it contains, nothing now can lessen. It rises as it will always rise above the mist of ages, a monument to great-hearted men and, for their nation, a possession forever. I mean, what style! Uh, and and yet this was uh, uh, rejected from the uh, the first volume of the official history by the publisher George Robertson, who thought this was utter tosh. Uh, uh, but Bean was not to be to be denied this, and he filed it away and and used that to 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 uh, conclude volume six, his final volume of the twelve volumes of the official history. Um, but it personifies a style of writing that uh, I, I, I suspect that uh, in years after, Bean may well have thought that he, that, that, uh, he gilded the lily there a bit too much. Interesting, because, well, it gets on to another aspect that we can touch on, because he had uh, difficulty, shall we say, getting the histories out for all sorts of reasons, not the least of which was a challenging of his style, um, and then censorship was an issue and different factions of uh, the military, all of these sorts of things. There were po- political interference. What was going on? Well, it's it quite an extraordinary story. Uh, it's a, a, an unknown story, largely, um, about just what difficulties he faced. Uh, he went to war. Uh, with the words of George Pierce, the defence minister, uh, in his ears that, uh, you know, we'd like you, Mr Bean, to to um, uh, probably uh, write the, uh, the history of this campaign um, when it's all over. And, of course, at that stage in 1914, everybody thought it was going to be a short war and, you know, be all over by maybe Christmas 1915 or something like that. But as we know, it dragged on until basically the end of 1918. Uh, and, and in during this time, Bean changed from being a war correspondent to being a war historian to prepare himself through writing his diaries and, and so forth for when he would come to write the history. And when he was appointed to write the history, I don't think he could have foreseen the problems that he, he would have had uh, with his authors. Uh, he, he was uh, uh, given one author uh, by, by the government. He didn't want him uh, to write the social history um, of the war in Australia. And that proved to be an, an utter disaster. And he had to sack him. Uh, and appoint somebody else, a, a historian of note, Sir Ernest Scott, to take over and, and finish that. Another one of his um, historians writing the, the history of the, the Navy, the Australian Navy in the north, in the uh, around Rabaul in New Guinea, the story of that, um, misled him constantly, um, just failed to deliver when he promised to have uh, uh, the, the stories, the, artic- the articles, the copy uh, completed and given to Bean. Uh, he actually ended up going to jail, which was quite, a, quite, quite, quite remarkable. But even uh, Bean's own style was questioned. That's right. I mean, George uh, Robertson, whom I mentioned earlier, uh, the publisher at Angus and Robertson, uh, they were given the, 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 the contract to publish the official history. And uh, George was a larger-than-life character. He, he mixed with the, the likes of uh, Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson, so he was in that milieu. And he, when he saw uh, Bean's first chapters, 
thought this is somebody who wants to write but can't write and, and, and told him so and it would only continue to take the, 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 the uh, contract on if Bean agreed to the appointment of a professor of English to oversee his writing style. And, well, what an insult to a man who's making his living from writing in many ways, etc., and had published books out. So all of these challenges um, were at, at the forefront and, and creating havoc for Bean. But we've sort of approached this interview from the wrong end in terms of the image that was created at the end, the histories that were written. But then really getting to the nub of it, Bean was at the forefront of the war. He was in the trenches. Bean went where no other correspondent went. Uh, the British correspondents were either in awe of him or jealous of him. He had this incredible commitment to seeking the truth, the truth as he saw it. And this meant that he had to be there. And so he went to every major battle, uh, every major engagement, either on the day uh, or as soon as possible afterwards to make sure that he got the story from the point of view of the ordinary troops in the trenches. And you're listening to Published or Not on 3CR. I've just paused that pre-record with Peter Rees. He, Peter Rees, is the biographer of Charles Bean, who was our World War I historian, uh, a great man of letters in many ways. And um, it's uh, fascinating. We have uh, Charles Bean in the trenches at the moment where nobody else, uh, no other journalist has been until that point in time. So let the pre-record continue. The troops on the battlefields. It was not for Bean to rely on the communiques from General Headquarters. That was for other correspondents. He wanted to know what was actually going on, what he could see with his own eyes. It cost him a bullet uh, in his thigh um, at Gallipoli. And uh, he, by the time he was on the Western Front, uh, dodging uh, shells and, and, uh, and bullets, uh, he, he was almost gung-ho to the danger. He, other correspondents who came... Um, uh, newbies to the to, to the field uh, were, were just just struck by the way that he went about uh, with this remarkable sang froid. Uh, he, he he reasoned that if a shell fell here, then a second one was going to fall in the same spot, so it was safe to go there. Uh, but they didn't know that. And there, lying in the bottom of the trench, just as they had fallen the night before, were three men of the tenth battalion. One poor chap had his tunic and shirt torn bare by some piece of shell and you looked down past the bare white skin of the chest almost to his backbone. His whole body had been ripped open. He was bent back almost double. I can't bear to think of these things. It is personal. It is immediate. He was really in the firing line. Bean's diaries are an incredible, remarkable insight into what war does to mankind. And he saw this as he, as he clambered through the trenches of the Western Front on a virtually daily basis. He confronted scenes like that. There are so many instances that he writes about in graphic detail in these diaries that, you, you, I mean, I reached the, the, the position that, that uh, or the conclusion that there's no way that Bean could have escaped these sites without suffering some degree of post-traumatic stress. And unwittingly, what he was doing in writing his diaries allowed him to debrief into that every day. This gave him an, um, an advantage 
at the ordinary soldiers, uh, mostly, other than those perhaps who were writing letters and keeping their own diaries, didn't have. And then the 23 years that that uh, he took to write and edit the, the official history uh, allowed him to further process uh, all these events as he went back through. But nonetheless, he would not have escaped by the end of that time uh, the, the impact of, of, of post-traumatic stress. Yes. How much did World War I shape the Australian identity? Well, there's a a major debate that's uh, raging around this very issue. Um, there are those who say that uh, the, the Australian identity uh, was formed on the beaches of Gallipoli on the 25th of April 1915. And there are those who scoff at this, repudiate it entirely and say, well, Australia was a nation formed at Federation um, in 1901. Um, and they point to the fact that uh, some world-leading advances have been made in Australia, like uh, women's suffrage, uh, the harvester case, which led to to um, the basic wage. Um, and, and there's no doubt that there were some very important advances that were catch, uh, catching the eye, eyes of the world. Um, but Australia was still a series of real, really, colonies. They were states, but they were still colonial in mind. Because of the distance between them. Absolutely. Yes. It's not not like today where we've got communications that overcome uh, the, the distance. vast distances of Australia so so easily. Back then, communications were, were, were archaic and almost non-existent in, in so many cases. But in forming the battalions, people from Queensland and Western Australia were joining together. For the first time, they met, they came together and they understood. They met the Kalgoorlie miners. They met the Opal miners. They met the boundary riders from Queensland, the farmers from western New South Wales, the shopkeepers from Victoria, uh, rural Victoria. All these people, for the first time, came together and from this developed the sense of nationhood. So it's a Australia... structural, it's almost like a structural thing rather than what they did on the shores of Gallipoli. Precisely. It was, it was in that training, that coming together of the Australian Imperial Force, the men really, for the first time, rubbing shoulders with, with the men of other states. And they had to call themselves Australian or under a battalion title, um, etc., rather than I'm a Western Australian or I'm a, um, from South Australia or wherever. Yeah. For the first time, yeah. there was a sense of Australian nationhood. The other thing is um, that Bean often found himself on the wrong side of history, if I can put it that way. Uh, there was the whole issue of uh, conscription, and what he said there was, if I can find my reference, despite this, Bean remained confident that the plebiscite would be carried in Australia, predicting that support from men would, uh, from women would be decisive. Still, he noted that Birdwood's circular to the troops did little good, rather the reverse. Hughes is getting as nervous as can be about it. Anything favourable from here will be telegraphed out to give Australia a lead. Anything unfavourable will be suppressed. Even Haig recognised the potential political and diplomatic dangers. He would only agree to send a message stating how much France and the Allies needed the Australian troops. So Bean favoured conscription. He certainly did. Uh, and um, uh, he, he got it wrong twice. And what's quite interesting about this is that in my research for an earlier book um, on Anzac nurses, Anzac girls, it was clear to me that there was a strong feeling among Australian nurses, Anzac nurses at the front, that 
there should be conscription so that the men who were at the front carrying the burden could be relieved. Bean had this same view, that the men there would, had, had done their job, had done their, made their contribution and they, they needed to be relieved. But the men saw it differently. They believed that they didn't want men who, who didn't volunteer, who hadn't uh, the same commitment that they had to come and, and replace them. If, they, if, if somebody didn't want to be there, they didn't want them. Uh, that was a that was a very strong overriding feeling that emerged among the troops, and so of course the the conscription battle uh, w- w- was lost. So Bean got that that attitude wrong, but I think that was he got that wrong because he was he was not a not a participant per se in the actual fighting. He was an observer of the fighting, and he was concerned for the for for the welfare of those who were doing the fighting, just like the nurses. And his opinion of Monash. Well, they had a very interesting, a very difficult relationship. He didn't uh, rate uh, Monash's performance um, uh, highly at Gallipoli. Um, and in fact, as I show in the book, they had a big falling out uh, and, uh, and Monash uh, went behind Bean's back to get his own publicity, uh, which was <laughs> really uh, uh, not, not the done thing. But on the Western Front, there's no doubt that Monash's performance improved. Monash had this capacity to, to really uh, apply himself and his troops and learn. And I don't think Bean really appreciated this until it was, uh, uh, until it was late, in, late, late in, the, in the process for him. Um, and this is why uh, he and Keith Murdoch uh, attempted to um, uh, to overturn the appointment of Monash as general officer commanding the Australian Corps in mid 1918. Um, they got it wrong. They overstepped the mark. They went much too far. They had no right to do that. And Bean admitted that. Uh, he admitted that he got it wrong. That they had no right to do it. Um, and there was also the issue of uh, Monash's. Uh, Jewishness. This was something that that, that uh, Bean wrote about from the point of view of cultural prejudice, yeah. uh, and and in this he reflected the cultural prejudices of the era. Yes. And it's 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 very. Uh, we have to be very careful in in looking at those cultural prejudices through the prism of today. Um, Bean admitted that he was wrong in that cultural prejudice, and 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 uh, by the time of World War II, uh, he he'd repudiated that position entirely. But you do an interesting thing then at the end of the book in comparing Monash's funeral with Bean's funeral. Which do you think better represents the Australian identity in some ways? Well, certainly in terms of Bean's values, uh, he he would have much preferred the 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 much lower key. Um, funeral that that um, uh, that he was given. I mean, I I saw Bean's funeral. I was a, a young cadet reporter uh, in Sydney at the time, and I just happened upon uh, his funeral at St Andrew's Cathedral. I knew it was on that day, and I was coming back from uh, a junior assignment, and and I watched, and it stayed with me forever. And it was not a big event. Um, uh, parts of uh, a part of George Street uh, was blocked off, uh, but it was not. There were no crowds lining the streets like there were for Monash, and Bean would not have wanted that. So that, I think, to, to, in, from Bean's perspective, that would have represented the ideal Australian approach to, 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 to uh, his death. Well, that's what I was thinking of when, it, when you put that in the book, that in many ways that represented 
the Australian values, quiet, sort of unpretentious, but that dogged work that had gone in behind it all was, was another factor as well. So basically, uh, that will unfortunately have to bear, uh, bring the interview to a close. <laughs> Um, bearing witness, it, it sounds very apostolic in some ways in terms of the title, but the book is called Bearing Witness. It is an Allen and Unwin publication, and the author is Peter Reese. So, Peter, thank you very much, sir. David, it's been a pleasure. 